This is week number 39 in our study of the book of Daniel, and we're over in chapter 9, and last week uh, we walked through some of the opening verses of Daniel's prayer to God, and you'll remember that as Daniel um, um, starts this prayer, he is led to do so because he has been reading apparently the, the scroll that Jeremiah wrote and he realizes that Jeremiah prophesied that the desolation of Jerusalem would be for 70 years. And so he realizes 70 years have just about elapsed and it's, so it's time for Israel to go back to Jerusalem. Now, um, in context, that is true, but it takes hundreds of years for really Israel to get back to Jerusalem. But this is the beginning point. This is the the first person who understands that and realizes that. And so Daniel, uh, you remember, puts on sackcloth. He sits in ashes. Um, He's fasting as a show of his repentance before the Lord and his humility before the Lord. And so Daniel is not going to pray just for himself, which he clearly does in this this passage. But he also prays for the nation. He um, repents for the nation of Israel. Um, because he recognizes that all the judgment that God has poured out on them is in accordance to what God had prophesied and also has been just and right because the nation themselves have committed many iniquities before God. And so Daniel um, assumes the position of taking on the sins of of the nation so that he can repent before God. And so this prayer is all about the character of God, the compassion of God, the faithfulness of God, the righteousness of God. On, on those basis, Daniel goes before God and repents for the nation. And we'll see at the end that he really calls out and commands God to do some things. And we'll talk about how can Daniel do that after he's repented and, and admitted all the iniquity, how is it that he can then call for God to do something, um, which seems a little outrageous, actually, when you, when you read it in the scripture. But he has good basis, I believe, for doing that. So that's some of what we're going to talk about today. Before we do that, I want to try and show the depth of the depravity of Israel and why God poured out what he did pour out on them and what Daniel says about how severe that was. So we'll begin reading this morning, kind of where we left off last week. We'll review just a little bit and then go forward in this prayer. So I'll begin reading in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 11 and read down through where the prayer really ends. uh, It's after really the prayer ends in, in verse 19. So Daniel chapter 9, verse 11, there the scripture reads, Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside not obeying your voice, so the curse has been poured out on us along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Thus he has confirmed his words which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on great calamity, for under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. 
Therefore the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who have, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day, we have sinned, we have been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and our, the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. So here Daniel continues kind of in the vein that we were talking about last week where he um, continues to admit the sin of Israel and of, of himself. And it's clear that Daniel writes here understanding that the reason that God has done what he's done to Judah and to Jerusalem is because of what he promised in the law of Moses. So that would be the Mosaic law. Uh, when Moses came down, gave the, the 12 uh, tablet. I mean, gave the 12, sorry, the commandments and the tablets so that the, the nation could be instructed of how they were to worship God. So that's the reference that he's had. And you remember last week we went back and we looked um, in Deuteronomy in, in chapter 28 where God called for all the people to be put into a valley between Mount Ebal and Gerizim. And then he sent some of the leaders up onto those mountains. And on Ebal, he sent men who would tell of the curses that would be put on Israel if they disobeyed God. And then on Mount Gerizim, he sent some of the leaders up there and they pronounced the blessings that would be on Israel if they obeyed God. And so in clear understanding of the curses and the blessings, the people all agreed again to be faithful to um, the law of Moses to all that God promised to what he commanded of them. And so we've got this clear picture where the whole nation understood what the curses were. Okay, and last week we just said that there were curses. What I want to show you this morning and, and take you over there and, and see what God says will happen to the nation if they disobey him. Now, um, so let's turn there, and then we'll, we'll talk about this for a minute. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 28. And we were in this chapter last week, but we, we only talked about that there were blessings and curses and not what the curses were. So I want to try and give us an understanding of what God actually said would happen to them if they disobeyed him. Now, this is the Mosaic law, right? 
this is clearly in Daniel's view because he refers to Moses and the law that was given through him. So this is what Daniel is thinking about when he sees what's happened to Israel and the curses and the judgment that's been poured out on them. All right, we, we talked about this last week. How long has it been since the Mosaic law was given to the nation of Israel? Well, how much time between Moses and Daniel? When did Israel come out of Egypt? Yeah, 1445 or so, right? And now we're in what year approximately? What century are we in? The 6th century. So we're in the 500s, in the probably the latter half of the 500s, because you remember 605 is when um, Nebuchadnezzar came against Jerusalem the first time. It's been at least 70 years. So we're in the 30s or maybe after um, in, in time reference. So it's been 900 years plus. So it's been 900 years since God gave the law of Moses. Long, long time ago, right? But this is what's crystal clear in Daniel's mind. And so he's referring back to, he, he actually writes it, the curse that was given when the law of Moses was given. So this is the chapter that he's referring to. Now you remember, the law of Moses was originally given in what book of the, of the scriptures? That's right, Leviticus, right? Leviticus is at the beginning of the 40 years when Israel wandered in the desert. Only lasts about a month. Deuteronomy is at the end of the 40 years, only lasts about a month. where Moses gives his farewell address to the nation. Numbers in between Leviticus and Deuteronomy is the 40 years, only given really any details about the very first and the very end, not anything known about the middle of it for the most part. So this is at the end of Moses' life. He's repeating what Israel agreed to 40 years ago when we're in Deuteronomy chapter 28, but they've didn't go into the promised land. They had to wander for 40 years so the whole generation would die. All the adults would die. And now the children of those people are very rugged. Uh, They all go into the land with Joshua. So this is what God said to them when he separated them on, on Mount Ebal and Gerizim. And these are the curses that he enumerates would happen to Jerusalem or to Israel, really. So look down in Deuteronomy 28, and I'm just going to pick out some verses here because you'll see how it relates to what happens to Israel. Verse 15, But it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And then he begins to name the curses. Now, Jump all the way down to verse 25 and see what one of these curses is. The Lord, your, the Lord shall cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will go out one way against them, but you will flee seven ways before them, and you will be an example of terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. So they're going to be defeated militarily. All right, then drop down to verse 32. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people. Sound familiar? While your eyes look on and yearn for them continually, but there will be nothing you can do. That's the 
taken the people captive and taken them off to Babylon, right? That's the curse that he's pronounced. Look in verse 36. He says, The Lord will bring you and your king, whom you set over you, to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone. And that's the idolatry that they experience when they're in Babylon. Notice that here, Moses says that you're going to set a king over yourself, and that's hundreds of years into the future. So even here, he's being prophetic. They have no king at this point, right? They have Moses. They're they're not a kingship. um, God is their leader. So even there, there's prophecy. Down in verse 49, look at what he writes. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand, a nation of fierce countenance who will have no respect for the old nor show, show favor to the young. Moreover, it shall eat the offspring of your herd and the, and the produce of your ground until you are destroyed, who also leaves you no grain, new wine or oil, nor the increase of your herd or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. It shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you've trusted come down throughout your land and it shall besiege you in all your towns throughout your land which the Lord your God has given you. Then you shall eat the offspring of your own body, the flesh of your sons and your daughters whom the Lord has given you during the siege and the distress of which your enemy will oppress you. That last part of that curse. What is that? Cannibalism, right? They're going to eat the offspring, right? Just keep that in your mind, okay? Now, this is a pretty bad curse, right? I mean, this is what God literally pronounced would happen to them if they were disobedient, all right? Keep reading down, like in verse 58. And so he says, if you are not careful to observe all the words of this law, which are written in this book, so fear to fear this honored and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring extraordinary plagues on you and your descendants, even severe and lasting plagues and miserable and chronic sicknesses. He will bring back on you all the diseases of Egypt, which we, of which you were afraid, and they will cling to you. Also, every sickness and every plague, which, not written in the book of this law, the Lord will bring on you until you are destroyed. Then you shall be left few in number, whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven, because you did not obey the Lord your God. It shall come about that as the Lord delighted over you to prosper you and multiply you, so the Lord will delight over you to make you perish and destroy you, and you will be torn from the land where you are entering to possess it. So they're going to lose their land. Their people are mostly going to be killed, so there is only a few of them left. They're going to eat their own flesh and blood. They're going to be totally destroyed. This is what God said would happen to to the Israelites if they disobeyed him. Crystal clear, is it not? This is what Daniel is remembering when he says what has happened to us is according to the curse that God gave to Moses 900 years ago. That's what is in Daniel's mind. That's what he understands. 
He says it crystal clear. There can be no mistaking what he said. Okay, so then look in verse 12 back in, in Daniel. So the, the, the curses are numerous and they're explicit. All right, now look at what he writes in verse 12. Thus he has confirmed his words, which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on this great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like was done to Jerusalem. So what does that say about the judgment that happened to Jerusalem? There has not been done anything under heaven like has happened to Jerusalem. Yeah, so I, I thought about that a little bit, and I thought about the northern kingdom. What happened to the northern kingdom 120 years or so before the southern kingdom was destroyed? Wiped out by the Assyrians and led off with fish hooks in their lips to be taken to a foreign land. Totally decimated, never to return. So when Daniel writes about Jerusalem, and they are going to return. Is it worse than what happened to the northern kingdoms who were blotted out, never to return? What is happening because there's all, Daniel recognizes, I mean, that there was going to be a return in 70 years. Right. Right. But look at what he says. He says, For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what was done in Jerusalem. So he's thinking about 70 years ago when they were wiped out. Now Nebuchadnezzar came against them multiple times, right? 605 and then 598. And then uh, eventually in 586 is where he destroyed the walls of the city. 584 when he burned the temple. So you have all these things that went on for not just a year, but for 20 years. But I don't think this thought about the worst thing ever happening to Jerusalem is original with Daniel. You know, there's this unique time in in history that we've been reading about when you had three men who were prophets all at the same time. You had uh, Jeremiah who preached to to Jerusalem and to the kings and all before they were taken into captivity. Remember last week we looked at uh, Jeremiah 38 where we're given the example of where in the year when, um, when Jerusalem fell that Jeremiah took a message to Jehoiakim and in the middle of reading that message remember Jehoiakim threw it into the fire burned it up it re- refused to believe it sent men to capture Jeremiah God protected Jeremiah he wrote it again and then added to it that um, Jehoiakim's body would lay bare to the burning sun and to the frost of night so he'd be killed and left on the battlefield and his body would just lay there and within a year, that exactly, that, that, those words became true. And so, the, just an example, an exemplar passage of the ignoring of the warnings of God that were commonplace 
for the kings of Judah and of Israel. And so we, we have all these examples. Now, writing at the same time as Jeremiah, preaching in both before the fall and after the fall, Daniel living during that time, but writing later, you have another man who's, who's also prophesying and writing, and that's Ezekiel. Ezekiel taken into captivity into Babylon a few years, seven years after Daniel. Daniel taken in 605, Ezekiel taken in 598. In, in, so they're both in Babylon, so they probably knew each other. I mean, Ezekiel is pronouncing judgment against Israel Daniel's living through it. You're probably younger than Ezekiel. So he's hearing the preaching of Jeremiah before and after the fall. He hears the preaching of Ezekiel during the captivity. And I want you to read what Ezekiel wrote in chapter 5 of Ezekiel. Now, Ezekiel, just uh, the book before Daniel, right? In the, in the canon. So Ezekiel chapter 5. And I'm going to read a little bit more than just this one verse where, um, where I believe Daniel got this thought that this is the worst thing that's ever happened on the planet. Look at um, just the opening verses of chapter 5. As for you, son of man, that's Ezekiel, take a sharp sword, take it and use it as a barber's razor on your head and beard, then take the scales for wearing to divide the hair. One-third you shall burn in the fire at the center of the city when the days of the siege are completed. Then you shall take one-third and strike it with a sword all around the city, and one-third you shall scatter to the wind, and I will unsheath the sword behind them. Take also a few in number from them and bind them in the edges of your robes. Take some again some of them and throw them into the fire and burn them in the fire, from it a fire will spread to the house of Israel. Okay, so here you've got Ezekiel commanded to take a, um, a sword, we call it a razor, and shave all his hair off and all his beard off, pile it all up and divide it into thirds, right? And so you're like, this is kind of crazy. God commanding um, Ezekiel to you know, look like people do today who shave their heads and all, and so be clean shaven, which would be un- very unusual. And then do something with his hair. So you go, you know, what is he talking about? What, what does that mean to Ezekiel? Well, God explains it in the next verses. He tells him exactly what's going to happen. Why is he having him part his hair into three piles and then do something with it? Keep reading. Ezekiel 5, chapter 5, verse 5. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. He's talking about the hair. This is Jerusalem. I have set her at the center of the nations with lands around her, but she has rebelled against my ordinances more wickedly than the nations and against my statutes more than the lands which surround her, for they have rejected my ordinances and have not walked in my statutes. So they're worse than their neighbors. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have more turmoil than the nations which surround you and have not walked in my statutes nor observed my ordinances nor observed the ordinances of the nations which surround you. Therefore says the Lord God, behold, I am, I, even I am against you 
Now execute judgments among you in the sight of the nations. And because of your abomination, I will do among you what I have not done and the like of which I will never do again. That's where Daniel got his idea that what happens in Jerusalem is worse than what's happened anywhere else on the planet before. He's quoting from Ezekiel. Now keep reading. And this is what the hair means. Sorry, I lost my place. 10. Therefore, fathers will eat their sons among you. Sound familiar? And sons will eat their fathers, for I will execute judgment on you and scatter all your remnant to every wind. So as I live, declares the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary and all your detestable idols of which your abominations, therefore I will also withdraw my eye and will have no pity and will spare and will not spare. One third of you will die by plague or be consumed by famine among you. One third will fall by the sword around you and one third I will scatter to every wind and I will unsheath the sword behind them. Thus my anger will be spent and I will satisfy my wrath on them and I will be appeased and they will know that I, the Lord, have spoken in my zeal when I have spent my wrath upon them. Three piles, right? What's the first pile for? Die by plagues and pestilence. Second pile? They'll be killed when the Babylonians come over them. They'll be killed by the sword. Third pile? Scattered to all the nations. Everywhere. Nobody left. That's that's three-thirds, right? That's all there is. So totally decimated and destroyed. Left for nothing. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but, um, and, and saying that Jerusalem was worse to the nations around them. Yeah. Right. Can you explain that further? Why, why would that be true? The more light you have, the more responsible become. And Israel had what no one else had. Right? In, right. Well, lamentations. Lamentations are the um, the cries of um, Jeremiah. Jeremiah laments what happens to um, to the nation, to Jerusalem. He's walking through the streets and looking at what happened. Where is lamentations? Ezekiel, Daniel, thank you. After Jeremiah, before Ezekiel, right? It's in order, David. Lamentations, chapter 2. Now, lamentations, all right, um, what does it mean to lament something? Because that's what, to cry, to mourn, to wail. I mean, this, uh, Jeremiah is overcome. And there is nothing good in the book of Lamentations. It's all bad. Everything is bad. And it's Jeremiah looking at the destruction of Jerusalem and wailing over what's happened to them. Just naming the atrocities and what they look like and just weeping 
because of the judgment of God. And look in chapter 2. And so these are, this isn't like a guy who is making stuff up. This is a guy who is looking at what is currently happened. And, I mean, because Jeremiah uniquely had the ability to go where he wanted to, to move to Babylon, to go back to Jerusalem. He apparently was free to, to do what he wanted to do. And, and because he's pronouncing judgments, which Nebuchadnezzar would have been applauding. Okay, so um, look in chapter 2 and down in verse 20. And he's not making this stuff up. He says, See, O Lord, and look with whom you have dealt thus. Should women eat their offspring, the little ones who were born healthy, should priest and prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord? On the ground in the streets, my young and old, my virgins and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered, not sparing. So here you have little girls laying in the street who were killed during the midst of the siege. You have little boys too, children. You have their mothers. And their mothers are eating literally the small babies because they're starving to death. That's, remember one of the curses? You'll have no oil. You'll have no uh, grain. You'll have nothing to eat. So if you don't eat your offspring, you're going to die of starvation. So they do eat them. And so this is literally the judgments that God pronounced against Jerusalem. You start to get a picture of what Daniel has in his mind? This is horrendous. This is outrageous. This is severe beyond what I usually think about. This is the judgment that God poured out against Jerusalem, against Judah, for their disobedience. And he's not making this stuff up. This is literally what happened. Go ahead. Absolutely. Yeah, it is very unique. Right. Right. Right, and it's Ezekiel who writes about the glory of God leaving the temple so that it will be destroyed. And, you know, but it's more than that. These judgments, this, all that's happened to Jerusalem was done at the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, okay, the Babylonians. But who orchestrated the, the war? God did. This is the judgment of God against Jerusalem based on what he wrote 900 years earlier in the law of Moses. I mean, this is, this is overwhelming. This is what's in Daniel's mind. And he said, and, and Daniel writes, okay, look at all of this horrendous stuff, and what does he write is true about it? 
about the God who caused this to happen. That he's righteous and just. This is what he told them would happen, and this is what happened. And it's not like they didn't have warning. Even in the year in which they were first overtaken, they had warning and ignored it. So Daniel is contrite before God and understands what's happened. I mean, he, this has not escaped him, that these curses have literally become true. And so he writes in the face of that that God is right and just to have, to have done this because this is what he said would happen. So the worst calamity on the planet ever, and Daniel understands it and is contrite before God and says, yeah, you're just in doing it. Now, I doubt anybody else in Jerusalem, maybe Ezekiel, would have agreed with that, that God was just in so destroying his own people. I think there are people today who have a problem with that. That, that, that. How could that be justice? Because he told them it would happen. It's not like they didn't have warning. It doesn't make it any less horrible or horrific. All right, now, just so you have a, a ray of hope here, right? Just, a, just a, a small inkling. Look at Ezekiel 5 again. And there's this little path in the midst of what I read to you. There's this little statement in verse 3. Take a few in number. So you've divided the hair into thirds. Take just a few hairs. Take a few in number from them and bind them in the edges of your robes. Take again some of them and throw them into the fire. So of the few, even throw some of those into the fire. So who are those few that he binds in his robe instead of casting to destruction? That's the remnant. How do you know that? Can you prove that? Well, yeah, but is that what he's talking about here? Well, you have to read Ezekiel, right? So you turn to Ezekiel chapter 6. I think, I think that Daniel has in mind all of them. Because he remember he said Judah, Jerusalem, and Israel in his prayer. He, he names all three of those distinctly in his prayer. Judah would have been the southern kingdom. Jerusalem would have been the city where God dwelt. Israel would have been the northern kingdom. And he names all three of them. So I think he has in view the whole thing at this point. Well, Exactly, and that's what he says here, right? He says that what happened in Jerusalem is worse than it ever happened on the planet before. So, But look at the, what he writes in chapter 6 in verse 8. However, I will leave a remnant for you, those who have escaped the sword among the nations when you are scattered among the countries. Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations to which they will be carried captive. Now I have been hurt by their adulterous hearts which turned away from me and by their eyes which played the harlot after their idols and they will loathe this is Daniel one of them they will loathe themselves in their own sight for the evils which they have committed for all their abominations so they recognize that they need to repent this is a small small remnant now 
Daniel, just so you understand Ezekiel, Ezekiel writes about what was going to happen to Jerusalem and did happen to Jerusalem. Then he writes in the middle part of his book about what's going to happen to the nations that did this to them. And then in the last part of the um, book, he writes about the first future restoration of Jerusalem, which I believe has not yet happened. It's yet to be. Because if you read the details of what he writes, it, it hasn't happened in, in Jerusalem. And so that Dan, Ezekiel does have some hope for them, but it's in the midst of this total, total despair. Go ahead, John David. Yeah. And all through the years, God has kept a small remnant of true Jews to himself. And he still does today. There's still a remnant of Jews who believe in Jesus Christ as a Savior, who hold to uh, the, his blood as their atonement, um, and they're, but they're small, just a few, in comparison to how many Jews live today. And he will always do that. And so there is hope here but it's in the midst of horrendous despair. All right, so go back to Daniel 9 with me. And I'm just going to kind of jet tour through this because Daniel continues to repeat what he's been saying. Um, verse 13, and he clearly has the law of Moses in view. As it is written, the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor. They, they never, never in any of this turned to the Lord. There were a few men like Ezekiel and Daniel who were faithful, Jeremiah, but the vast majority were rebellious. You remember even when they took the message to Jehoiakim in the year in which they were overtaken, those, there were some faithful men there who wanted him to understand the message so they would repent because God said, if they do, I will even save them now, even in that year. And yet they didn't. They refused to listen. And so Daniel understands this. Therefore, the, in, uh, in verse 14, that God has kept this calamity in store. The Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. Daniel continues to understand that God is just in what he's done, even as horrendous as it was. He's still just because this is exactly what he promised he would do, he has done. And now, O Lord of God, in verse 15, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day. Why in the world? I mean, if you didn't know better, and I hadn't told you anything about this, if you picked this up and began to read it, you would think they had just come out of Egypt, right? It's been 900 years. More than 900 years. Why in the world does Daniel refer back to something that happened 900 years ago? Why is he doing that? Because he's drawing a parallel between before they were in captivity to the Egyptians, now they're in captivity to the Babylonians. Uh, God is able to do what he that, that, like, it's like he 
Exactly. That, and that's what he wants himself to understand and other people to understand. That there was a time when we were slaves in Egypt and God did miraculous things to bring us out and to put us into the promised land. He's still able to do that. And so he's reminding himself of the greatness of God and what has happened in the past in the, in the land of the Jews. So, and, and then he goes on and he says, O Lord, verse 16, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from the city of Jerusalem. How can Daniel ask for that? When he knows what God has done is just. How can he be bold enough to say, God, turn your anger now away from Jerusalem when everything you've done to destroy her is just? How can he say that? He knows what's coming. He believes what Jeremiah wrote. So Daniel is... is being informed by scripture in his prayer to God. Same thing we should do, right? This is praying scripture back to God. That's what Daniel's doing here. He's reminding himself of what the scripture writes and then telling God that he understands and, uh, and that w- what he wrote is true and righteous and that you're going to do what you said, so I'm going to be bold to ask you to do what you said you were going to do. This is, this is having your prayers informed by scripture. So he goes on, and he says, um, "This is Daniel is not praying this prayer of restoration for the Jews back to Jerusalem so that they'll get out of all the trouble they're in. Not his motivation at all. And that comes out clear in the next couple of verses. Look at what he says. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, verse 16, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because of the sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all around us. Meaning what? We've become a reproach. Meaning what? So what's the big... Why? So who cares? Well, and it reflects on God's name. Because all the nations understood that the Israelites came out of Egypt and were able to go into their land because their God was with them. And now they've been destroyed, which says, what about their God? He can't keep them. He can't protect them. They've been overcome. He's gone. So they're a reproach and the name of God is reproached by all the people who see all this happening. And Daniel's heartbroken about that. And because look at what he continues to pray. So now, verse 17, So now our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication. And for whose sake? Your sake. For the sake of God, O Lord, let your face shine on on your desolate sanctuary, meaning the temple in Jerusalem, which is now desolate. So Daniel isn't praying this for his sake or for his people's sake. He's praying it for God's sake. So God's name won't be reproached. Go ahead, David. Yeah. No. Right. Right. He'll say so in a second. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and he uh, 
identifies with the sins of his people. It's not like I'm innocent. He never says that anywhere in here, that those guys or they did this. He always says we and I. So he identifies with what's going on here. Look at what he, he goes on. Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name, for we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. So Daniel says, I'm as bad as they are. I have no merit to ask you to do anything that would be compassionate. But I'm appealing to your promise and to your compassion. I have no merit before you to ask anything. That's, that's humility. This is, one of the, this is probably the most righteous man alive at this particular time when he writes this, when he prays this. I mean, God is so responsive to this man's prayer that he sends an angel to prophesy to him. That's, that was pretty responsive. And yet he says, I have no merit whatsoever to come before you. None. Any merit I have is, is because of your compassion. And God is compassionate. Now, just think about it. We, we've zoomed the history of Israel, right? From the time of Moses to the destruction of Jerusalem all based upon their iniquities. 900 years. And it didn't just happen overnight. God was patient with them for 900 years. It didn't bring judgment on them until finally he had enough, according to his plan. 900 years of patience of God. Daniel understands that. God is compassionate. And so he appeals to God's compassion. And he says, in verse 19, O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive. Apart from that, there's going to be no restoration. O Lord, listen and take action for your own sake, O my God. Do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. Meaning we're all associated with you and there's no getting away from that because God identified with them through history and they proclaimed it to all the nations. So the only way that God's name is going to be uh, not reproachable is that they be restored to Jerusalem, ultimately. Now, again, like I said, I don't believe that's happened yet to the degree that Ezekiel writes about. There has been times of temporary restoration, clearly, but not full restoration as written in Ezekiel, not at all. There's got to be something yet future in order for this to be true. Daniel understands all this. This is all clear in his mind. Go ahead. The horrors continue. The judgments continue. To this day. I mean, you, you, I mean Israel is scattered everywhere to this day. They're, they're a big issue in many countries around the world. And you know what happened in the world wars to them. And I mean, it's, it's just horrendous, the judgment that's been poured out on these people. But, and so for this to be true, and for what we'll read later to be true, in, that Ezekiel writes about and that Daniel writes about, there's got to be yet something future. It has to be. Otherwise, this is not true. 
because the name of God is still reproached today on the basis of the Jews. So, I mean, amazing prayer by Daniel. So contrite. So identifying with sin. So admitting he's sinful. So asking for God to be compassionate and forgiving. So identifying with God's righteousness that he's just in judging his own people. It's, it's, it's overwhelming. Go ahead, Larry. When you started today, you raised the question, why would Daniel command the Lord yeah. to do these things? I don't think it's a command. It's not. It's a plea. It is. It's a plea. It is. He's not commanding God. He's, he's, he's repeating back to God what God promised through Jeremiah. Again, his prayer is being informed by Scripture. And he's simply telling God what God told Jeremiah. He's not making up anything new. This is what God told Jeremiah would be true. Go ahead. I think it's good for us to read these scriptures like you did today for us to see how much God hates sin. Yeah. And how holy he is. And this, I mean, there's no difference in my sin and the sin of Israel. They're both an abomination before God. You know, and this same judgment would be poured out on me apart from the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Right. This kind of helps us begin to understand that, does it not? That's why we walk through these details. That's why I went to Ezekiel. And so we would understand God's perspective on what happened here and why he did what he did. And he does hate sin. It's all an abomination before him. Big sin, little sin, he hates it. And so apart from compassion that Daniel pleads for, we're hopeless. We're hopeless. Everybody's hopeless. <coughs> apart from the compassion of God through Jesus Christ. There's no hope. Daniel knows that. He understands it. He prays about it. And God responds in a supernatural way to Daniel. So it's in that context. You know, people always talk about the prophecy of the 70 weeks of Daniel. That's what comes next. It's in the context that we're at right now that that prophecy comes. And oftentimes we miss that of what's the context of Daniel's mind and his heart when God gives him this prophecy of 70 weeks. It's not Daniel's prophecy. It's Gabriel's. Daniel just hears it and records it. But it's in this context. So we need to remember that as we go in the, next, in the coming weeks of, what, we're, of we're, what we understand right now. Final comments? Something you want to say? Question you got? Overwhelming prayer, is it not? If, if our prayers could be but follow this model. Thanks for your time. <laughs>